Thanks, Luke. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is a Bible on the pew back in front of you. Black ESV copy, you can use that. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4 is where we'll be today. I grew up a Dallas Cowboy fan. I have always been a Dallas Cowboy fan, and I will always be a Dallas Cowboy fan. I grew up in the Emmett Smith era, all right? This is the golden era for our Cowboys fans, the Emmett Smith era. I probably saw every carry Emmett Smith had while wearing a Dallas Cowboy uniform. At least almost, I think, I saw every one of them. Emmett Smith is statistically the best runner in NFL history. Statistically. But Emmett Smith, now know where this comes from. This comes from a Cowboys fan. Have I said that? Cowboys fan. Emmett Smith was not the best running back in his own era, much less NFL history. Barry Sanders was. Tackling Barry Sanders was like catching a wet bar of soap. You could not do it. It was impossible. I once saw a defensive lineman miss tackling him three times on the same play. He missed him, fell down to the ground, got up, ran after him, missed him again, fell down to the ground, got up, went after him, missed him again, and fell down to the ground. You watched him run to the right, and everybody followed him over there. And then all of a sudden, Barry Sanders was running up the left side of the field while all the defense was just laying on top of each other back there on the field. Nobody could catch him. Now, Barry Sanders is third on the all-time rushing list. And he was very entertaining to watch. But that's not what made him the best. Barry Sanders was old school. Barry Sanders would run 176 yards just to gain 20. He would cross the goal line with the whole defense looking like fools of themselves. And then he would take the ball and he would give it to the referee and he would go back to the sidelines. <laughs> amen. Yes, amen. Yeah. We don't see that anymore. It's refreshing to see that kind of approach to the game. You don't see that anymore in college, much less the pros. Everything is really about the person holding the ball. They become center stage. They're motivated by building their own name. And, and Barry Sanders, even though he could have been motivated by building his own name, he had every right to be just as showboaty as anyone else. He refused to take center stage. He was motivated by the success of his team. This morning, we're contemplating our own motivations. In fact, for the entire duration of chapter 6, we're going to be looking at our own motivations for doing righteousness. What is it 
that truly motivates you to live in accordance with the ethics that Jesus has already laid out in chapter 5 of Matthew. We've gone through, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount so far in chapter 5, and now the question turns to, what are your motivations? And so for the next chapter, Jesus is going to check our motivations for doing righteousness. And the underlying question behind it all is, what is the deepest desire for your heart? What is the deepest desire for your heart? And with that in mind, let's look at our text this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I just want to remind us where we are in the book of Matthew. We're in the middle of what's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. And the main purpose of the, of, of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus introducing us to the kingdom of heaven. He's giving us an, introdu- an introduction to the kingdom of heaven. If you look back in chapter 4, verse 17, he says there, or Matthew says there, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is introducing his audience to this kingdom of heaven and how one is to enter it. How do you gain entrance into this kingdom of heaven? And so he opens the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, he tells us what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. Here's the kind of character that this person embodies. One who is poor in spirit, one who mourns over sin. The kinds of people that are valuable in the kingdom of heaven, in other words, are not typically valuable by the world's standards. But the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is also marked... Not just by their character, but by how they live. And so we see for the next, the remainder of the chapter, really in chapter 5, that there is a righteousness that is defined by the scribes and Pharisees that unfortunately does not cut the mustard for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It is entirely insufficient for the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells them that the righteousness of the heavenly citizen must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. He says that there in 5.20. And so we just wrapped up six sections from this sermon, 5.21 to 47, where Jesus is defining some of these teachings that are insufficient forms of righteousness that the Pharisees are teaching. And then finally, in verse 48, which we got to last week, Jesus tells us, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so, then we know what kind of righteousness is required for those to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is perfect righteousness. It is God's righteousness. So now that Jesus has set the standard of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven, he's now transitioning in chapter 6 
to discuss the next phase of righteousness, our motivation in performing righteousness. And so for all of chapter 6, he's going to poke at our motivations. He's going to inquire about them. What is really your motivation here? And really the challenge for us is to think about the reasons that we practice righteousness. The first thing that he says here about our motivations in practicing righteousness, he says, our motivations for righteousness impact eternal rewards. Our motivations for righteousness impact eternal rewards. Look at verse 1 there with me. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus makes really a blanket statement here that's intended to cover the entire chapter. Verse 1 is just that introductory statement that's meant to cover the entire chapter. And the way, the, the way chapter 6 lays out is this first statement that he makes in verse 1 is followed by three examples. So we're going to track with him through three examples in the coming weeks. First, righteousness in giving is the first example that he gives. Righteousness in prayer is the second example he gives. And then righteousness in fasting is the third example that he gives there in chapter 6. And in the middle of these three examples, he breaks out into teaching us about how our prayer should be rightly ordered. Now, we call that the Lord's Prayer. You'll see that right there in the middle of the chapter. But all of it, no matter the Lord's Prayer and the rest of it, is all designed to warn us about improper motivations for righteousness. I think the Lord's Prayer, when understood in that context, is teaching us more than simply how to pray. It's really teaching us about how our prayers should be rightly oriented with the correct agenda in prayer. So that our righteousness and the reason for practicing our righteousness is without question. And so we'll be talking about that in the next few weeks but here there's this blanket statement by Jesus. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now this is very clearly a warning to us. Jesus tells us, Beware, or in other words, put your attention on this. Is literally what the word means. Put your attention on this. And, and what is it that we're to put our attention on? Practicing our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now you might be thinking, Practicing my righteousness? Did you just read the last chapter? Because if you've just read chapter 5, most of us are probably thinking, I've got a long way to go before I can even practice righteousness, much less do it before anybody else. What is Jesus getting at here? Well, it, this needs to be said because of chapter 5, verse 16. Look back there with me just really quickly. 5, 16. There, Jesus says this, In the same way... Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, on first read, that might seem like a contradiction. Or at the very least, it's confusing. Which is it, Jesus? Am I supposed to let others see my righteousness? Or am I not supposed to let others see my righteousness? To which, of course, Jesus answers... Yes. Simultaneously, 
showing righteousness and hiding righteousness. Of course, Jesus, his concerns here are not merely that others see your good works. That's not chiefly the concern, that others just see your good works. He expects others to see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As he says in chapter 5, he's concerned with what motivates us to perform those good works. What motivates us to do those good works. He says that it's dangerous enough that we need to keep close watch on our hearts. He says in order to be seen by others. That's creeping up in all of our hearts that our righteousness is performed in, other to, in order to be seen by others. And that's what we need to be aware of. Now, I want you to notice something here. And don't, don't just gloss over this. Don't just go by without thinking really on this. You and I are motivated by reward. You and I are motivated by reward. Notice that Jesus does not condemn here reward-seeking. You notice that he doesn't say, well, you've only got your mind on what you get. Shame on you. You shouldn't only have your mind on what you get. All you think about is reward that's coming for what you're doing. How sinful of you. Your righteousness should be completely selfless. He doesn't say that. He assumes, in fact, that you are motivated by reward and he encourages it. He just wants you to seek heavenly rather than earthly rewards. There's this misconception that Christians often pick up from probably Eastern religions, Buddhism, or somewhere else, that we're to reject all forms of satisfaction and pleasure. But this couldn't be further from the case in Christianity. In fact, Paul says of his own mission work in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Disqualified from what? The imperishable wreath. That's what he's fighting for. That's what he's running the race for. He's running it to win. He wants the reward. He later says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil. Finally, Jesus says in Revelation 22:12, "Behold, I am coming, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done." The scriptures are very clear. These are just 3 of many that we could point to. They're very clear that reward is coming for those that believe, and not only is the reward worth waiting for, but you're supposed to be motivated by it. 
Jesus says, or you'll lose your reward. Like it's a punishment. Like you, you don't want that, do you? You're supposed to be motivated by reward. The problem for us is not being motivated by reward, but being satisfied by trinkets. That's our problem. We're satisfied by that which cannot satisfy. C.S. Lewis put it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by, by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Amen. Be that as it may, Jesus says here, that in the event that our hearts are motivated by the wrong goal, any hope of reward eternal is dashed. But the question is why? I think Jesus gives the answer in verse 2. He makes the point that human praise is the only desired outcome for ostentatious giving. Human praise is the only desired outcome for ostentatious giving. That, that kind of giving that's designed to attract attention or impress. That's what ostentatious is. That, that desire to attract attention or impress. Look at verse 2. He says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward." There are some things about this verse that we, we just don't know. Um, it's not entirely clear if Jesus is criticizing a common practice of sounding trumpets when you give alms to the poor, or if he's just making, he's saying, like, don't toot your own horn. It's, it's kind of unclear, and the only reason it's unclear is because uh, we don't have anything in the history books that would say that this is what they're doing. And so we just don't know. We don't have any evidence for that going on. So some have suggested that this was a common place to blow a horn every time an alm was given. Every time somebody gave to the poor, that they would blow a horn, or that they would have a personal um, you know, entourage go with them and blow a horn every time they gave uh, money to the poor. Now we do know that there was a shofar, a uh, ram's horn, that was blown at the beginning of the worship services at the temples daily. And we also know that the synagogues had this habit now of, by the first century, of collecting money from rich people and basically creating a sort of welfare system that was private to the community, that was for the poor in the community to kind of give them, to provide for them daily. So it's possible that when the alms were collected, that, there were, that they were in conjunction with the blowing of the shofar to welcome people into worship, like the, that this was the kind of the beginning of the worship service. But we have no record of any kind as to what exactly was happening. So we don't know exactly what Jesus was talking about here, but he's obviously referencing something that was going on, that was common in the culture, that everybody would understand, that's kind of like that. Now Jesus' point, though, about it is abundantly clear. When you give in such a way as to be seen by others, 
Human praise is the only thing that will satisfy you. That's it. It's the only thing that will satisfy you. There are few addictions in this world like the addiction to human praise. Few addictions in this world. There's no stopping the way it makes you feel. You can't stop the way human praise makes you feel. There's no patch or pill to get you off of it. You're predisposed to being attracted to it. So you're behind the eight ball from birth. On top of that, it's encouraged in our society. But but will you notice something here? The danger is not simply that people see your righteousness. That's what some people think. If anyone sees the good that I've done, then God's not going to give me a reward. It's like God's sitting up in heaven and going, Nope, that neighbor across the street, Agatha Kravitz, you know what I'm talking about, is looking out the window. She saw you slip that money into your friend's mailbox. Reward vanquished. No more reward for you. That's not what Jesus is saying. The danger is that your heart becomes motivated by people seeing your righteousness. In which case, your reward is getting exactly what your heart desired. That's the only thing that your heart wants, is that. That's the only thing that will satisfy me, is that. And that's the only reason I'm doing the righteousness, is chasing after that. In the event that your heart's desire is to be praised by men, then even a heavenly reward would be fruitless because... That's not what you wanted to begin with. It won't satisfy you. Now, do you see the danger here in being addicted to the praise of men? Because it quickly becomes the only thing that will satisfy us at that point. And we keep chasing that dopamine hit one after another. To the point where a reward from God himself is not what we want. When you have small children, it's difficult to communicate value to them. The value of a product. And I was in Target the other day with, this was a few weeks ago, with Andrew and Grayson. And we were going through the toy aisle. And we are going through the Legos. And our intent was to buy some Legos for them to play with at home. It was a reward day. And they were getting their reward. So we're looking at the Legos. And as you go down the Lego aisle, they've got these little kits that are kind of like puzzles. They're like $10, $15, something like that. And it's a little like jet ski, you know, or a a motorboat or a dinosaur or something like that. And it's got instructions that you follow. And if you follow the instructions, by the end of the time, you have a little speedboat that, you know, can zoom around and things like that and really do not much else. Okay. And so we're looking at these things. And then down at the bottom shelf, there is this big plastic bucket of Legos. Far more expensive than the little $10 speedboat. And inside that plastic bucket is thousands and thousands of Legos for which you, with which you can build a speedboat, you could build a dinosaur, you could build all kinds of things to your heart's content. But for some reason, my kids couldn't get their eye off the speedboat. And here I am in the aisle trying to spend more money. I don't know why I was doing that. Something came over me, and I'm telling them, look, this 
bucket of Legos is far more expensive. And it's so much better. You can build the speedboat at home if you want with this bucket. It's fine. You can do that. But you can build many other things as well. But they wouldn't be satisfied with that. In fact, I know, my kids, if it had come to the point where I said, you know what, kid, you just don't know what's good for you. I'm going to get you this bucket, and you're going to like it. You're going to see. If I had done that, and we had gone home, their minds would not be able to leave the speedboat back there on the Lego aisle. Similarly, when we become addicted to the praise of men, it quickly becomes the only thing that satisfies us. It becomes the central thing that we're living for. And soon, even our, our, our giving, the money that we give, is d- dictated by attracting the praise of others. Attracting the attention of others. But there's more here than simply blowing the horn to signify that you've given money. There's there's more here than simply the attraction of the praise of others. The hypocrisy that Jesus is pointing to is, as one preacher put it, being driven by the craving for other people to make much of us. Being driven by the craving for other people to make much of us. Now, most of us in this room we'll never have our names emblazoned on the edifice of a building somewhere. Some of us might, but that's not a common problem for people to make much of a generous donation of ours and put our name on a building. That's just not common to everybody. More of us are going to be tempted to use our money as power, to wield it as a sword. And one way to do that is to say, I gave this much, and therefore I deserve a say in how things are done around here. Which leads to another way of wielding money as power. Well, if you don't want to do it my way, then we'll see what you think when the money dries up. So we become tempted to use the money that we give to gain the reward of control or use the money that we withhold to gain control now once control is given well then we start acting a little more friendly we turn loose of the pocketbook again okay good now I have the control now either way we have our way we have our reward either way We have our reward. The only thing that will satisfy us is having control over the situation. And when we don't have control, we use money to gain it. And we want people to make much of us as we throw our weight around. I want you to know who I am. I want you to know that I'm important. And so this is what I do, and I gain control. That's what I want. So then the reward is given to me. No other form of a reward will satisfy. It's not good enough for our Heavenly Father to say, I will reward your faithful giving. I will reward you eternally, your faithful giving. You will not lose a penny 
it will be repaid to you. It's not enough. I want control. Control is the outcome that we're working for. And if that's you, then Jesus says, you have your reward. Last thing he says, heavenly reward is the only desired outcome for quiet giving. Heavenly reward is the only desired outcome for quiet giving. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus uses an example here of giving to the needy, and he says that we should be so secretive in our giving that our left hand doesn't even know what our right hand is doing in terms of giving to the needy. And as I said, the issue is not merely someone seeing your righteous deed, but that our heart being motivated by it. The issue is that our heart is motivated by the praise of others. And that becomes the reason for us doing righteous things. So Jesus proposes a solution in order to really test the motivations for our righteousness. And what is the test of the motivation? Tell absolutely no one. To use the previous example, expect absolutely nothing in return. To just give it and walk away. Not only are we born with an addiction to praise, but we live in a generation, in an age that is geared toward feeding that praise addiction. And anytime we have a thought or joke or a picture or an opinion, it goes on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and what we get back is praise, 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 and more praise. That's all we get in return. And so social media gives us this fix anytime we need one. Anytime we need the dopamine hit of praise, we have it at our disposal. It is one click away. However, now Jesus isn't talking about posting to Facebook here. He's talking about giving to the needy, right? But track with me on this train of thought. Think with me here. If what we're used to and what we're training ourselves to do is to get the dopamine hit of praise at the click of a button, then what will happen when we do righteous deeds? One, a temptation will be to post it on social media. Right? That's one temptation. But far more often, we've trained our soul that what I really want is a praise fix. So when I do righteousness, I'm looking around for my button to hit. Where is my dopamine fix of praise? Please, somebody give it to me. And I'm itching for that praise fix. Even when I don't have it. Now, of course, our post doesn't say, I gave some money to a guy today. How awesome am I? He doesn't ask for praise like that. That's not what our post sounds like. It sounds more like met a guy on the street today. Gave him some money. He's down on his luck. Y'all pray for him. 
His name is Jim. <laughs> it's usually phrased in a much less self-aggrandizing way. The expectation is the same. Likes, favorites, hearts, retweets, shares. If Jesus' words were to be rephrased today, he might say something like, when you give to the needy, don't let your Facebook account know what you're doing. Checked into soup kitchen. Look at that. But then he gets to the heart of the matter in verse 4. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the heart issue, is it not? The outcome of quiet giving is a heavenly reward. There is a guarantee on the line. Don't miss that. As we look at, there is a guarantee, it's a promise from the Son of God Himself telling us that there is a reward on the line. And as we've already seen, it's meant to appeal to your desires. You're meant to look at this promise and go, that is actually really appealing. I want that. There's a guarantee on the line. But the question is, what truly motivates you? Is that reward enough? What are you chasing? What's going to ultimately satisfy you? What do you really long for? What is the motivation for your working righteousness? What is the motivation for your giving? Is it to hear others say, well done? Is it perhaps to gain control? Have people cater to you? If so, then you have your reward. Uh, that's not a promise that you're going to get that. Just that that's the only reward that will satisfy you. Or is it to hear your heavenly Father say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Yes. Yes. Brothers and sisters, what motivates us to do righteousness? What motivates you to do righteousness? That is the question that we all have to answer. I've got to answer it. You've got to answer it. We've all got to answer that independently. What motivates us towards righteousness? And it's not just money. I've got to answer that question for pastoring. I've got to answer that question for fatherhood, for being a husband. I've got to answer that question on multiple fronts. What motivates me in doing what's right? Is it for earthly or heavenly reward? Heavenly reward is the promise of the gospel message. Think about that for just a second. Heavenly reward is the promise of the gospel message. Without heavenly reward, the gospel message is meaningless. If in the end we are all still left in our sins and we still die and we just turn into worm food, then it's meaningless. Heavenly reward is is the promise of the gospel message. It's what makes it sweet. In other words, to say that you believe in the gospel, to say, I am a Christian, I believe in the gospel, I believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, is simultaneously to say, I believe that the promises of God are superior to all the world's earthly trinkets. 
Anything that the world could offer pales in comparison to what God is offering me. And I'm going to orient my life. I'm going to live my life oriented towards delayed gratification. That doesn't mean that there aren't pleasures that we enjoy in the here and now. Marriage, fatherhood, parenthood can be those pleasures sometimes. Other joys exist in this world that we're free to enjoy, of course. But it is to say that my life is oriented toward the promises of God and I value those far above anything that I could gain here on earth. We're encouraged to think this way. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the the founder and perfecter of our faith, Listen to this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The pattern that Jesus set before us was to endure the cross. Why? Why? Was it because doom and gloom is all that you can expect as a Christian? Well, that's just what your, your lot in life is. You're a Christian. So you just have to be sad all the time. You can't enjoy anything. There's no such thing as joy. You've got to send all that away. No. He says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And, and what was that joy? To be seated at the right hand of God. Eternal reward was set before him. And he endured the cross because of it. Brothers and sisters, if you are following Christ... Eternal reward is set before you. The question is, do you believe in the promise? Is it enough to satisfy you? Do you believe that it's worth sacrificing momentary praise for an eternity of riches? You see that this is one of the most fundamental questions that you can ask yourself in the Christian life. What is my heart's desire? What do I truly want? This is not just a question for Christians. This is a question for the unbelieving world as well. If you are here today and you're questioning this whole thing that we're preaching about, that we're teaching about, that we're singing about, you're questioning the reality of Jesus. You're questioning, I'm just not sure about this. The question's on the table for you as well. Have the things in your life so far without Jesus satisfied you? Are they a sufficient reward? If you were to die today and be worm food, would that be enough for you? Well, maybe it's that promotion at work. Maybe that next thing will do. I get the promotion. Maybe that, maybe that is what, that's really what's holding me back here is that. If I just had that, it would be, life would be better. If I just went here or did that, life would be better. Then I would, I, I would have that thing. That would, that would really, I think, satisfy me in the long run. 
till you get to that place and you realize it's got its own headaches and worries and frustrations, doesn't quite fulfill the way you thought it would. Or money, maybe it's, I just, you know, I'm not making enough, it's hard to pay bills and, and so, you know, maybe I just, just need a little bit more. But then you get there and you realize that there's only so many things that you can buy, only so much stuff you can do. Sometimes budgets, even when you're rich, get stretched thin. Because the more you make, the more you spend. And I'm reminded of the great philosopher, Biggie Smalls, who said, more money, more problems. Right? You get to that point and you realize that it's not enough. It too doesn't satisfy us. But, but let me tell you, Nothing will satisfy your heart more than submitting your life to King Jesus. Amen. Jesus tells us in John 4, everyone who drinks this water, he's talking about actual water, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, not actual water, but spiritual water, that I will give him, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Then later in John 7, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We read the passage in Isaiah 55 earlier, Come to me, buy and eat. Why do you spend your money on things that are not bread, that won't satisfy? Does that satisfy your heart, God's promise of eternal reward? Does it satisfy your heart? Is it enough for you? Now for the unbeliever in here, does that appeal to your soul? Is that what you want? Satisfaction? If your answer is yes, then Jesus is the only thing that will satisfy if our answer is yes to that question, then let's apply that to our giving for just a moment. Think about it for just a second. Jesus is going to give us three examples in this chapter that we'll talk about in the coming weeks. He's going to give us three examples in this chapter to talk about our motivations for righteousness. But if I were to ask anyone in this room, any Christian in this room, what would you say are the staple things in a Christian's diet? What are the things that a Christian really needs to do when they become a Christian? What are the things that need to become a part of their regular life? I think most people in here would have praying on their list. They put it on the list somewhere. In addition to some other things, prayer would be on the list. If I were to talk to a, a, a first century Christian, fasting would be on the list. Actually, probably a Christian that is anywhere before America probably would put fasting on the list. It's fallen out of favor, unfortunately, in our society, but before then, a huge part of the Christian life, fasting. But I want you to notice something here. For Jesus, giving is his first example. Not only is it his first example, he assumes that you're going to do it. He assumes that you're going to, not if you give to the needy, when you give to the needy. In other words, the assumption is that you're a generous people. 
The assumption is that my people are generous. If your life is lived for the joy of heavenly reward, then generosity is assumed. It shouldn't be a question at the end of the meal at a restaurant as to whether or not a Christian is going to be generous or stingy with the tip. It shouldn't be a question. Or she's a Christian. Of course she's generous. She realizes that her money, of course, is not hers. It's on loan to her. So of all people, she is going to be generous. And not only that, but the Christian and the waiter or waitress are the only ones that will ever know. What better test of your motivations for practicing righteousness can there be than giving away your money without anyone knowing it? What better test could there be than giving it away without ever being recognized for it? Giving away your money without currying any kind of favor in return? Without having repayment given back to you? Giving away your money and having absolutely no control over what happens when it leaves your hand. What better test for your righteousness can there be? The test of righteousness is that when I give quietly, the only one that can truly satisfy my desires, the Lord of all creation, is the only one that knows and in the end, that's worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have so much. We've been blessed with so much. Straight from your hand, you have just opened up the storehouses of heaven and you have given it to us in abundance. We live better than anybody that's ever lived on the face of the planet. We live in the richest society that has ever existed. We have more forms of entertainment than King Solomon in his prime. We pause now to recognize all of it is from your hand a blessing and all of it is a test. We recognize that, Lord, that you are testing our generosity. And we pray that we be found faithful. Lord, I do not want to give an account for stinginess. I don't want to be stingy. Convince us that your promises are true. That your rewards eternally are worth sacrificing temporarily. Pray that you would create in us a heart that is generous. That people around us would be blessed 
by how willing we are to turn loose of what we have. Bring conviction on us where greed has overcome us. May we turn from it and give abundantly what we cannot keep to gain what we could not earn. In Jesus' name, amen.